You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. Today, we're going to be talking about conflict, more specifically, how conflict can be a good thing for your business. To discuss this, I'm joined by Ian Leslie, journalist and author of a series of acclaimed books on human behavior. And Ian's most recent, published earlier this year, is Conflicted, Why Arguments Are Tearing Us Apart and How They Can Bring Us Together. I'm also joined by Estella Shardlow, Stylus's senior editor of Consumer Lifestyle, who has written extensively about new workplace trends. So welcome to you both. To kick off, Ian, it would be great if you could tell us a bit about Conflicted and what motivated you to write it. Well, I started off by just looking at all the terrible arguments that were going on around me in the culture. Perhaps I spend too much time on Twitter. That, that, we can blame Twitter, Twitter for this. And first, I thought I was going to write a book which was about how we can basically almost put conflict aside and just talk through our differences, you know, calmly and, and, and sort of rationally, in inverted commas. But as I thought more about it and I did some more thinking research, I thought actually that's only the kind of tip of the iceberg, the, these kind of toxic arguments you see on social media. The real problem is that we find disagreement so uncomfortable that most of the time we avoid it. And actually seeing it, how badly it goes wrong in such a public way on, on social media or indeed on, on TV and in all sorts of places, it reinforces our aversion to it, right? Because we, we become convinced that it's this incredibly stressful, dangerous thing. And that actually the, 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 the thing we're missing out on is constructive or product, productive disagreement and its immense benefits, right? It's so important to the way we think, to the way we create, to the way we relate to each other. And when we sort of put it aside, because we're a little bit scared of it, we, we, we really lose out in, in, in some very profound ways. So, so, so the book is the real mission that, that I'm on is to help people get more comfortable and more confident about how to do productive disagreement. So I think for our kind of audience, which is you know, generally made up of, of brands and creatives, I think this idea of, of productive and creative disagreement is, is a really interesting one. I think it'd be interesting to talk about just some of the insights from the book that might be most meaningful for, for them. So this idea, I mean, you, you, you talk about this idea of tolerable tension about the kind of exactly the right sort of balance of conflict that, that can nurture and fuel creativity. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is from psychology, although it kind of makes intuitive sense once you think about it as well. The, there's this kind of idea that ideally in a group, everyone is and moving in the same direction. So you might have one of those inspirational pictures on, on your wall at work, you know, everybody uh, in a boat kind of rowing in the same direction. That's completely wrong, right? You don't actually want everybody agreeing because then what you get is a kind of group thing. You're not act actually maximizing the intelligence of your team if everybody's agreeing with each other. So you could have a group of people around the table. They all have kind of unique information and insights and experiences in their head, right? Nobody's got the same kind of set of knowledge. But what often happens 
this is a problem called shared information bias, is that we only talk about the information that everybody already knows, because that's easier to do. And we all, essentially, we only, we, we just kind of organize ourselves around what we already know we don't actually explore all the different perspectives and different points of view and debate and disagreement is one of the ways of forcing that out of people like getting that information out and that insight out onto the table so that you have a much richer gene pool right and gene pools is kind of an appropriate word because this is a darwinian process right the the more kind of points of view and the more arguments you, you get the more variety you get the richer the process of selection that then happens as people push their arguments forward their perspectives forward and other people kind of push back on them right openly and if it goes well if it's managed in the right way you end up with the weaker points of view and the weaker arguments that the ones that just don't stand up or aren't based in in reality and truth just get swept away and the best ones survive and you end up with a much kind of more rigorous and robust and intelligent creative point of view than you would if you just sat around and gone you know yeah you're right you're completely right whoever said the first thing we're all going to nod along with that because we want an easy life and we all want to get along so I, I think in the modern workplace there's a huge emphasis these days on cooperation and collaboration, which is good, right, and essential. But that kind of too easily translates into just being nice and, and, and nodding, nodding along and sort of passively agreeing with everyone another. So I would like to see more emphasis on, on open disagreement and conflict and, and using that productively. <clears throat> because actually the different parts of your company, the different departments should be in tension, right? They, they should have conflicting kind of interests and conflicting points of view. The point is not that everybody should agree with each other. The point is you use those points of view to create something new, right? So a disagreement should be an act of creativity. It's like two plus two equals five. When, when disagreements go wrong, it's because it's a zero sum game and everybody's like, no, I want my point of view to win. No, I want my point of view to win. But what the best way to see it is to say, I'm, I'm going to let my point of view kind of clash and fuse with your point of view and create something new that neither of us could have come up with by ourselves. Yeah, I think that's one of the most sort of the, the, the one of the points that really hit home for me. And you and you go back all the way to Socrates to sort of bring this out, this idea of disagreement as a learning experience and not a battle where somebody wins and somebody loses. I think one of the other really key things for when we're talking about the workplace that you talk about is is this sort of idea of indirect conflict, which I think a lot of people will will know as passive aggression or more likely as office politics. This idea that there is conflict in your business, but it's sort of uh, not brought out into the open and it sort of festers and everybody kind of understands that there's tension, but no one wants to, to talk about it. And I think every office knows about this. Every office has experienced it. How do you how do you sort of take take that kind of conflict and bring it to a more healthy place? So, well, let me put it this way. If, if people do not disagree openly and do not have their conflicts out, you know, across the table, as it were, figuratively or, or, or literally, then those conflicts and those tensions do not disappear. They don't just magically, you know, not happen. They become submerged into passive aggression and, and well, office politics, which is really kind of passive aggression at scale, right? So ideally, you want to be in a, 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 you want to create a culture in which it's expected that everybody gets their differences out, has their differences out with each other, you know, in the group, rather than 
in corridor conversations, you know, or, or kind of offline or in DMs or, you know, in some private channel on Slack, whatever. You know, actually, I was talking to just recently, so this is after the book, a senior executive at uh, Netflix. And Netflix has been, is, is really strong on this, right? So they have a very strong culture of open disagreement, disagreement being very, very important to the culture of, of the company, up and down the hierarchy as well as across, right? So you're expected to disagree with, you, with your boss. And I said to her, has it been uncomfortable for you to adjust? Because she joined from an organization which, where there was a lot of kind of uh, niceness uh, with nobody kind of actually saying what they really thought and a lot of kind of you know passive aggression has it been difficult to adjust to a situation where you can be the most senior person in a room or a whole hall and a really junior person will, will come along and say you're completely wrong about this and also you need to change the way you speak because nobody can hear what you're saying some like that's kind of how they talk to each other right <clears throat> and she said yeah, at first it was a little bit kind of like, hey, who do you think you are? You know, when I got, you know, somebody saying that or an email from, from someone. But it soon felt liberating. It's actually much more relaxing to have things done that way. Because at my old place, everybody would nod along. And then I would leave the room thinking, what are they saying to each other afterwards? You know, because I know these conversations are happening. They're saying stuff behind my back. And at this place, I just know they've, I can, I know what, when they disagree with me, I know when they think I'm doing something stupid because they say it. And it's, of course, then I can argue my case back, right? And, and I, and I, it's, it's, it's actually a much more kind of, yeah, freeing, kind of relaxing experience. So that's the way to think about it is that the way to create passive aggression in office politics is not to have your disagreements and and the opposite is is also also true so lots of stuff i want to get go back to but estella i was wondering if if you might give us a sort of overview of some of the workplace trends that you've been covering on stylus and obviously lots changed over the past 12 to 18 months so it'd just be interesting to hear sort of it put put all of this in context of of, of the broader trends around the workplace yeah, definitely. Because I think it's certainly been an evolution. I think people proclaiming kind of the beginning of lockdowns that you know, the office is dead have largely sort of re-evaluated that, seeing sort of some of the things which just are done better in person over the, the past year have kind of come to light. And looking at a lot of polls that have been done globally amongst employers and employees, there's certainly a kind of overall sense that hybrid is the way forward. So whether that's sort of one day a week or 50-50, there's a sort of consensus that some more flexible compromise between sort of where we were and and the and where we are now is going to be probably the most productive for the majority of people. And it's kind of about recognizing, I think, that employees have different needs and different working styles and obviously different homes as well, which makes a huge difference to whether working from home is a kind of blessing or a curse. And I think it's quite an exciting prospect that We've definitely seen that you don't need to be tied to to an office sort of Monday to Friday and that, you know, you can you don't even have to tie where you live to being within an hour of, of your office anymore. But equally kind of absence makes the heart grow fonder, I suppose, and in the past year, you've had the chance to start missing certain aspects of office life. So we're certainly expecting that the fiscal office will have a role to play for most companies and it's quite an exciting time to rethink what that can look like and and really drill down the purpose of a physical workspace I think what have we missed and the things which seem to be coming through in our research are 
primarily making it places to foster social capital and creative interaction. So that kind of links into lots of stuff that Ian's been talking about. And the other thing is actually a lot of people are, are seeking more protect productivity and focus. Um, that's what they would like to return to the office for, which I guess speaks to what their home environments are like. So on the first point, yeah, there's definitely been companies reporting that they want to have a greater amount of collaborative space and people saying they want to to get back to the office to reconnect with colleagues and feel a sort of sense of shared purpose. And I've, one case study that I think runs with this quite nicely is the furniture company feature has been using this analogy of a clubhouse for their transforming their own HQ. And it's all about collaborative spaces, learning and socializing together, which kind of makes sense because obviously we are social animals and, you know, places that people can flourish and spark off each other, I think is really important. You know, while work from home is convenient, it's kind of links back to this idea I read about in the New York Times recently about kind of languishing versus flourishing. And I feel like for a lot of people working from home, is it's kind of quite a flat experience in a way. You know, it's it's like you're not having to battle through the, the stressful commute, but you also aren't getting those kind of moments of really like the energy of a, a great brainstorm. Ian, you were finished with the book before the pandemic or was the pandemic happening concurrently as you were writing? It overlapped a bit. So I, I was in the final... Um, stages of of editing and finishing it in the first sort of three months of of the, of the pandemic. It's actually quite good timing because it gave me something to focus on. So I suppose that the big question is, you know, a lot of the things you've been talking about, Anisela has been talking about in terms of, you know, creative collaboration and and conflict and productive disagreement is quite difficult to do over Zoom. And, you know, here we are on Zoom right now, and it's quite hard for us to sort of really understand our, our physical and vocal visual cues. The subtleties of conversation is somewhat flattened out. You know, how, how do you think you would adapt your, your strategies in, in Conflicted for this new reality that, we, that we're in at the moment? Oh, the same strategies, but I, I, I think that it, it's we should acknowledge that it's it's harder to do this well uh, over video. So yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. One is there's a difference between creating and reinforcing a a, a culture and kind of exploiting it. I mean, in, in exploiting it in a good way, right? So so once once you have a kind of really great workplace culture then you're going to reap the benefits of it for 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 a long time right but it's and and i think you can do that over video because you have the relationships you have people with a kind of implicit knowledge of of how we interact with each other in in this company so if you're all forced to stay home you can do that over video actually you won't really notice the difference for a while but actually it's much harder to create that kind of culture over video to create that culture i think you do need the richness of in person relationships and so for instance i think it's it would be harder for somebody to join a company and become part of that culture quickly if they're only doing it over video right you're going to get a much better feel much more quickly for how we interact with each other and how we behave in this company if you're in the room with with other people so i think what we've seen during the pandemic is that uh, video is a is a good substitute, right? It's a better substitute than we thought, perhaps, for for in person conversations and meetings. 
but it's not a perfect substitute. It's a very imperfect substitute, right? So it's very good that we have it, but we shouldn't mistake it for the, the real thing. Because as you say, what happens when you have in-person interactions is that you, you have much richer channel of communication going on right you, you can there's just something about being physically in the room with people a part of this is just a question of microseconds of, of timing you know when you're in a discussion people kind of overlap with each other they 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 might interrupt with each other maybe a bit too much sometimes but but something about the kind of speed complexity of the discussion that you get in 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 the room it's very difficult to reproduce a video video tends to become a procession of people saying here's my view and then somebody else speaks and says here's, here's my view as a very different kind of conversation and it does make disagreement harder and I, th I think it's even more difficult for us to disagree well because we're it's even harder to read the social signals that we're getting from other people you know in, in the room you can kind of sense almost at a kind of animal level when somebody is not happy with what you're saying or or if they disagree if there's a little frown on, on on their face it's actually quite a lot harder to do that over video. And so the result of that is that we're a lot more cautious. I just think Zoom conversations tend to be more cautious, more, more conservative, and therefore less creative, less likely to lead to kind of new thinking. Just and it's interesting, out. I mentioned Netflix earlier, but I, I note that, that Reed Hastings, who of course, you know, is at the forefront of digital innovation, in so many ways, is very keen for everyone to get back to the office. And when he was asked why, he said to debate ideas. Right? You want to debate ideas, so you want to have creative conversations about ideas, it's much better to do, to do that in person. Yes, I wonder whether that's one of the reasons behind the sort of sudden popularity of Clubhouse as well, which is a way for people to have slightly more complex, complicated, you know, interruptive conversations that, that they weren't having on Zoom or, or, you know, on podcasts like this. Estella, I mean, we're about to have a whole new generation of, of sort of tech savvy, you know, TikTok savvy, Zoom savvy kids joining the workforce, you know, the Generation Z. It'd be interesting to hear about their priorities and needs because I, I, I feel like this is quite a different generation to what's come before. And, you know, they've, they've obviously been growing up in a very volatile world, not just the pandemic, but, you know, a world of cancel culture and, you know, political activism and so on and so forth. So I, I get a sense that their needs are, are, are going to be quite different. How, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, employers definitely need to get thinking about this cohort because we're talking about in the US alone, 51 million employees by 2030. Um, so it's triple what it is now. We've been looking at this kind of transition point from education to the world of work in our um, upcoming post-COVID consumer lifecycle series. And one thing that's really been coming through is this sense of Gen Z just not feeling adequately prepared for kind of life skills and workplace challenges, kind of the education focus being so much on kind of academic achievement. So there was uh, a poll that Ernst Young did that 59% said they'd like to see greater exposure to real life work and professional mentorship in the education system. So that's quite an interesting kind of strand that we're kind of tracking. And then some apps that are launching to kind of try and address this there's a new platform called real world which is for very much that consumer that's just leaving college and entering the workforce and it has all these playbooks that kind of gamify how to sort of navigate your way through different adulthood obstacles so whether it's like finding the best health insurance or negotiating your salary so i think there's going to be more in that in that vein and we hear on the whole that gen z self-identify as being very entrepreneurial and purpose-driven and that is i think partly stems from this feeling of 
things of disenfranchised for its sort of traditional roots and it's the workforce you know many professions now require not only a degree but a post-grad qualification and work experience and there's been all the controversy around unpaid internships so that is I guess one of the negative sort of aspects it's pushing them maybe to be towards being more entrepreneurial but in a more positive sense they also have all these you know digital skills to make their own way and and not to conform so much and I think there's also maybe something in this like this aversion to settling I was quite struck by you know recently when we saw the Goldman Sachs trainees pushing back on their excessive work hours when I graduated a decade ago let's say it was very much seen as like just grin and bear it like do your time and I think yeah these kind of acts of you know suing an employer to get fair pay when you've done internship for them it's quite you know, quite bold, it's quite different. And I think there's a, instinctively this pushing back against sort of do your time mentality. And finally, I'd also just say on that um, sort of place, placing a premium on purpose, this could affect kind of work perks that you could use to kind of entice your Gen Z. So I've seen that Canada Goose is giving its worker workers a paid hour off per week to spend in nature and kind of do environmental activities or kind of charitable works and then Twitter's also giving its employees a day off per month to recharge under this day of rest program so I think yeah sort of what what uh, Gen Z see as being work perks is going to be quite different to my previous generations. Does a, does a pub garden count as being in nature do you think? Yeah I, I, well just go back to your point about Goldman Sachs it's interesting that you talk about them pushing back and, and being quite bold because I think one of the sort of uh, stereotypes of, of Gen Z is this idea that they're quite conflict averse. You know, this is a generation that sort of has been brought up in a, in a fairly toxic social media environment and are kind of labelled as, you know, slightly intolerant in terms of cancel culture, in terms of forcing, you know, people to to be deplatformed and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't want to go into all of that in specifically, but, I, but I'd be interested in, from your perspective, whether you have seen a kind of generational divide when you were researching the book and whether, you know, what you talk about in Conflicted is something that you think will be embraced by this younger audience or, or resisted. Yeah, I, I mean, there may be a generational, not divide, but it, it, it may be that, that the younger generations are incrementally more uncomfortable with kind of open disagreement and, and debate than, than older generations. This is tied up with these sensitivities around diversity. Now, the, the, the kind of great emphasis on, on diversity is welcome, but it, it, we have to be careful it doesn't slip into kind of overly too much caution around who's going who's gonna to speak up. You know, just from a kind of instrumental point of view, if you have a group of people around a table and they're, and they're all diverse in different ways, that's great. But if they all then just converge on the same point of view, you know, without really debating and discussing it and, and having their kind of, you know, these inherent tensions out, then you haven't really unlocked the benefits of diversity. So I think it's, it's important to, to recall that, that, that argument and debate and, and, and expressing our different points of view openly with each other is the best way to maximise the wonderful benefits of, of diversity in, in, in all sorts of ways. So I think a lot of the stuff about council culture, you know, it, it can seem like people are being really aggressively counselled and, and, and sort of sidelined and so on. 
but I see underneath that the same fear of of disagreement that that I see across the generations, the same aversion to actually having d- debate and, and and discussion. And I admit it's uncomfortable in the moment, but the benefits of it are so huge that that, that we should pursue it. You know, it's a little like exercise. You know, when you're when you're doing, you know, when you're in the gym, you know, you can feel quite uncomfortable. You can feel you know, quite painful, but you do it because you know, by by putting that tension on on your muscles or your heart, whatever it is, it's, it's going to grow back stronger. So over the long run, it's very good for you. Fantastic. <clears throat> um, so at the end of every episode, I ask my guests three quickfire questions. The first one. I guess we should sort of adapt a bit as you're not a business, so so to speak. <laughs> but what is the what is the best career advice, I guess, then you you've been given, Ian, in terms of, you know, achieving your your goals? I would say best career advice. I, now, this is not necessarily something that I've adapted, adopted, but it's actually really interesting. So so at least we can talk about that. Somebody when I used to work for a large organization, somebody, a senior said to me, the way to succeed in a, a, a large company is to project a caricature of yourself without letting it get out of control. Right. And both parts are important. In other words, you need to effectively kind of create a, a slightly exaggerated version of yourself, almost like a, you know, a sort of branded version of, of yourself that you become known for being this kind of person. And you become kind of more salient in organizationally when, when you do that. But if you let that get out of control and it comes to define you and you're just that guy who's like the, the geek or you're just the kind of funny guy or, or, or whatever it is, then you can get kind of pigeonholed too quickly. So you've got to strike a fine balance. I thought that was, I think about that often and I actually see it playing out across all sorts of realms. I see it in politics, for instance, you know, the best politicians project a kind of larger life version of themselves, which sometimes gets too far and kind of makes them seem, you know, irrelevant or absurd after a while, but there's a kind of balance to be struck. So yeah, I think that's a, Interesting. The second question is, what's a consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet? Well, I was reflecting this morning on the on the fact that the toilet is probably the same. You know, the toilet in my bathroom, pretty much the same as it was in the bathroom of this house. You know, this house is over 100 years old. Probably every toilet that's been in this house has worked in basically the same way. And, you know, given that we've had so much innovation so many ways, so many different parts of the house and so many different parts of our world it seem odd. And you, you, if you've been to Japan, you'll know they've, they've done all sorts of interesting things with, with the toilet. So our kind of staunch refusal to accept any innovation on the way we go to the toilet, I think is, yeah, it's interesting. The final question is, which individuals or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work? Well. I'm anybody who knows me knows I'm a big fan of the Beatles and they give me inspiration in lots of different ways. I actually talk about them in the book. They they are a great example of how you can bring individuals together and if they're brought together if the right people brought together in the right way and they create their own culture you, you just have this huge multiplier effect. And so I I think just sort of studying them gives you so much insight into 
creativity and and cooperation until you get married i guess <laughs> until one of you gets married and the band has to split up don't let's not get this is a whole nother podcast i and then in terms of sort of writing and being that that side of my the whole side of my career malcolm gladwell i think is just really kind of created the whole field that, that i write in you know kind of ideas based non-fiction and i think he's interesting not just as a as a writer, but the way he's kind of steered and and managed his career, and the way he never really stands still. So you know, he started writing journalism, then he moved into books, and then he uh, extended that into into speaking. You know, really paid a lot of attention to how to become a, a great speaker. And now he's kind of become, he's gone into podcasting, and really kind of now I think speech and podcasting is his thing rather than writing. So he's always kind of moving on and, and, and refreshing things. And I think that's a, a, an inspiration. Brilliant. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, I've, the book, Conflicted, which I've read, is fantastic and it covers so much ground and brings in you know some amazing case studies, not just the Beatles, but also Waco and Socrates, as I mentioned. So well worth getting hold of, I think, for, for anyone interested in you know creative com- conflict, but also I think particularly for our audience when you're managing people, when you're trying to build a business culture, an internal culture that works, I think it's really very, very insightful and useful. So thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guests, Ian Leslie and Estella Shardlow, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live, and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at wearestylus. So thank you very much. Join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.